One of my favorite professors in college told the story about how he was a young man. He met his uh, future in-laws for the first time. And uh, of course, he was a political science professor when I knew him. And so he tells this story. And he says, I, I went to my uh, fiance's house to meet them for the first time. Asked what I did. And I, I told him I was a political science uh, professor. And, and they said, well, there's things we don't talk about in our family. Politics and religion. And he said, why? Religion tells you where you came from and where you're going, and politics is what you do in the meantime. I thought that sounded pretty good to me. But, uh, religion goes all the way through. He got that part wrong. But he did make a point. Religion tells you where you came from and where you're going. Every world religion has to deal with the issue of how did we get here and where are we going? And every religion does deal with those topics. And so the question is, well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say specifically about what happens to us when we die? Depending on who you talk to, you may hear different things. Uh, one group says, well, there'll be a thousand-year reign uh, on the earth. Another group says, well, we'll be amongst, uh, uh, we will be the, the best among us, rather. Uh, we'll be made like God and we'll have our own planet. Uh, another group claims uh, that only the best get to go to heaven and the re rest remain on earth. Some suggest that if we, if we try hard but we fail, we'll have a second chance to work off our sins uh, in the spirit realm. Can we really know what will happen to us after death? Does the Bible give us any idea? Understanding our fate provides a purpose and a mission for our living Knowing a purpose and mission helps us to understand and maintain our responsibilities as Christians. Understanding our responsibility provides a direction for our daily lives. This morning, I want us to think about this issue. Not only does the Bible, as the Word of God, answer the question about what happens to us after we die, but we also find that God is very consistent and loving in His message about what awaits for us. This morning, think about these ideas. Where our soul goes after death. A resurrection from the dead. And a judgment and an eternity. Let's begin with that first question. Where our soul goes after death. In the Old Testament, there's not a whole lot that is said about what happens to us when we die. But we do see this idea of Sheol, the Hebrew word for the place of the dead, throughout Scripture. We can find it in a number of places, but let's start with Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 uh, and, uh, and see what Solomon has to tell us. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. There's an interesting passage here. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 9. Solomon says, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under, your, under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. I guess if I was a lady, I would, I would put a star by that, right? Remind my husband of that all the time. You know, uh, enjoy life with your wife. This is your reward in this life. But then notice verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity 
or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you, where you are going. So Sheol is the Hebrew idea of the place of the dead. When you die, this is where your soul goes. And Solomon tells us here, inspired by God, that when you get there, there's no planning, there's no activity, there's no wisdom, uh, there's no uh, any of that kind of stuff. So I guess if you're tired of reading textbooks, that's a relief, right? There's no wisdom there. You know, you're not going to be doing that. Uh, you're not having to plan out jobs. You know, you're not having to plan activities. All of that stuff, there's none of that. It's the place of the dead. It's, it's where your soul goes to wait. Now, what's missing a lot of times from the Old Testament is a detailed description of what comes after that. But there is this idea that uh, there is a place of waiting. Look at Psalm 49. Psalm chapter 49, verses 12 through 15. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and, after, and of those after them who approve their words. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death will be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And their form shall be for Sheol to consume. So they have no habitation." But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Okay, so here's maybe a glimpse of an idea that something is coming after Sheol. Now, many would point to this as, as maybe being a, a, a prophecy of Christ. Well, you will not allow my soul uh, to remain in Hades, or in the Hebrew, in, in Sheol. Uh, but here's this idea. It's a place where you go. It's a place where your soul abides for a period of time. And that's the Hebrew idea of Sheol. It was very similar uh, to the idea of Hades that the Greeks had. The Greeks also believed in, in a place where your soul goes when you die, and they called it Hades. They even had a god by that name, uh, Hades. But you went there, and you were just there. There wasn't anything going on. You were just there. Uh, the only difference with the Greeks is, uh, if you read some ancient Greek works, uh, you'll find that sometimes they would brutalize corpses because as long as your corpse was on the ground, your enemy could come and do anything to it, and they thought that, that your soul would continue to feel that thing, okay? Uh, feel that pain. Um, but the Greeks had this idea of Hades. It was very similar. It's a place where your soul goes uh, when you die, and there's nothing else. Uh, there's no hope. Uh, both of these ideas convey the idea, or carry the idea of, of being underground or being in darkness or being in the pit, uh, being in a place of, of, of gloominess, uh, but there is nothing else to that. It was just where your soul goes when you die. When Jesus comes along, uh, Jesus seems to endorse this idea. In fact, by the first century, uh, in Jewish circles, uh, there was the idea that Hades may uh, have been uh, divided uh, into multiple levels or multiple places, uh, and, and, and they were rather extreme in, in some of their renderings of that. But Jesus seemed to endorse the idea that, that yes, in Hades there's, there's a good part and there's a bad part. And he does this with the story of Lazarus and the rich man. That's in Luke chapter 16. So if you want to turn over there to Luke chapter 16. 
And as you're turning to Luke chapter 16, I want to point out that there are some scholars that will argue that Jesus is uh, telling a parable here. There are other scholars that refute that. Uh, and remember, the word parable means to set alongside, to make a comparison. And so when Jesus tells a parable, he is comparing things. Uh, oftentimes in the New Testament or in the Gospels, when Jesus tells a parable, the Gospel narrator will say, Jesus told a parable, or Jesus told another parable. In Luke 16, that doesn't take place. Also in Luke chapter 16, there's a comparison. Now Jesus is, is using this story to prove a point, and we'll talk about that in just a second, uh, but it's missing those, those key indicators that Jesus is telling a parable. Uh, and so a parable is an illustration. It doesn't necessarily have to be true, but Luke 16 seems to be a little bit different. Let's read this. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Now there is a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And we'll pause here for just a second. Uh, it sounds kind of strange for us to say that a uh, man died and he went and he laid in another man's bosom. Okay? Uh, remember... Uh, the way that people inclined as they ate, uh, you would often be described as being in someone's bosom. It was a place of closeness, a, a close friendship. Okay, So here's the story. Rich man doesn't take care of Lazarus at all uh, in, in, uh, while life is going on. Uh, Lazarus is treated as pretty low on the totem pole, kind of the scum of society type, type of thing. Uh, but as soon as they die, Lazarus gets to go and he gets to be in the bosom of Abraham, the closeness of the man of greatest renown and respect in Jewish culture and society. Okay, so that's just kind of a, 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 a what it, what's going on there. What is Luke? What is Jesus trying to describe? Okay, look at verse twenty-three. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. Okay, and then they have a discussion. Look at verse 26. Abraham says, Besides all this, between you and us there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and, and that none may cross over from there to us. Then he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, so, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not come also to this place of torment. Okay, here's the point as we look at this. The place of Hades seems to be endorsed by Jesus. That there is a place that you, your soul goes when you die. There seems to be some initial level of judgment because some people, go to the side that has torment, and some people get to go to the side where there's not torment. The side of torment apparently has some sort of fiery, you know, uh, aspect to it because Lazarus, I mean, the rich man's saying, have Lazarus come over and give me some water. This place is horrible. Uh, they're close enough that they can talk. They're close enough that they can see each other. 
Uh, they're close enough that, that they're aware of each other's presence. They're also aware that they're not living anymore. And the rich man is aware that he still has brothers living on earth. How much of this is just a story that Jesus is saying to prove a point? And how much of this is Jesus giving us a hint at this place of the dead where your soul goes when you die? Certainly there are some aspects of it, I, I suppose, uh, that are real. Now they may be spiritual, because we've done off with the physical aspect of our lives. But there are real things that Jesus is describing here. Your soul dies. When you die, your soul is separated from your body. And you go to a place of waiting. And there seems to be an initial level of judgment based on what Jesus is saying here. Why would Jesus use a story uh, to illustrate some points when they're not reality? What points is Jesus trying to make in this story? We need to remember what's just transpired. Look at verse 13. Luke 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now look at verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And so here's what's going on. Jesus is doing this teaching, saying, you have to choose. Are you going to follow God, or are you going to uh, follow money? Be a servant of money. And Jesus is making this, this lesson, this teaching. And there's some Pharisees there, and they're scoffing at Jesus because, Luke tells us, they loved money. And that's the setting in which Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Verse 15, he said to them, to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And Jesus goes on to talk to them about how they have perverted the law. And then he tells the story in verse 19. Now there was a rich man, habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. You guys think you're so righteous and you've got it made and you're so consumed with your desire to have more and wealth, you're kind of like this man who had all these things but he refused to take care of other people in, in this life. And Jesus' point is when you die, your soul's going to get and if that's the way you live your life, separate and apart from God, even though you put on airs of being righteous, it's not going to be good for you. And so Jesus uses the story of Hades to illustrate that point. And so in doing so, Jesus seems to endorse that idea uh, that there is a place where our souls go uh, when we die, a place of waiting. We also see that in Revelation chapter 20. Look at that. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 following. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. 
Then I saw a great right throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the the book, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here we have John, inspired by God, in this vision, and he's seen people being judged. People that have already been deceased, people that are dead. And uh, they're in the sea. You know, I suppose that's the Navy guys, right? Uh, guys that die at sea or whatever. Uh, everyone else is in Hades. Okay, the, the place of the dead. And so throughout Scripture, whether it's in the Old Testament, whether it's Jesus in the Gospels, whether it's here in Revelation, is this idea of there being a waiting place that your soul goes when you die. But it's just that, a waiting place. There is a judgment that comes at some point. And we see a glimpse of that here in Revelation. When these souls are, are raised from the dead, and, uh, and now they are called to, to stand before God and to give an accounting. And so let's talk about that resurrection of the dead. If there is a place where our souls go when we die, there comes a time when our souls are no longer in that place of waiting, but now we are held accountable by God. Now we stand before God. There's another number of passages that we look at to see this idea. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul's writing to Christians. Evidently, they've corresponded with him. Uh, they're upset. They're, they're maybe a little bit depressed about uh, some of the Christians in their church there who have already died. And so Paul's responding to that. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of God, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul says, look, there's going to come a time in which Jesus returns, but he's not going to come all the way down to the ground and set his feet on the ground and walk around for a thousand years. No, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to come. He's going to be in the clouds, and he's already going to have with him all those other folks who have died and were Christians, they're going to be with them, or with him rather, and those of us that are still alive and, uh, and kicking, we're going to immediately ascend into the clouds, and he says, be with the Lord forever. And so there's going to be this resurrection. 
those who are in the Lord as Christians, when they die, he will bring them back with him. And the rest of us are going to ascend into the clouds and be with him forever. And Paul says that you can comfort one another with that. Well, when there's Christians that you know, Christians that you love, people in your family that were godly Christian people, and they've died, and, and you're sad, and there's holes in your lives, you can comfort one another with the idea that you're going to be with them and with Jesus forever. So you don't have to grieve. Like the Greeks who have no hope, who think that all you do is you go to Hades, and you're there, and you're there, and you're there. He says you don't have to grieve like those guys. Because you know that that's not it. You can know that Sheol and Hades and the pit is not all that there is. There's going to come a time in which God's going to call you up out of that. And you're going to be able to remain with Christ forever. So comfort one another with these words, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 following. We get the same idea again from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Paul spends a lot of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talking about the resurrection and, and the significance of the resurrection. We're going to delve into that uh, later in a later sermon. But for right now, I just want you to notice eight verses here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the same that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a time coming in which Jesus is going to descend out of the heavens. Uh, he's going to be in the clouds. There's going to be the shout of the archangel. There's going to be some trumpet blast. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when that last trumpet blast comes, then everyone who's a Christian that's still alive and living on this earth is going to be changed in a twinkling of an eye. The dead will be raised. And we will be changed. We'll have that heavenly body. We'll have an immortal body. We'll have a spiritual body. And like I said, Paul spends a lot of time talking about this in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll delve into that in greater detail in a, in a later sermon. But for right now, what I want you to notice is that there is a resurrection. We're not stuck in Hades. We're not stuck in that place of the dead. We look forward to that resurrection. Jesus spoke about that resurrection. John chapter 5, verse 25. Notice what Jesus' words are. John chapter 5, verse 25. So far, in both of these passages, 1 Corinthians 15, as well as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul has been talking to Christians about what's going to happen to Christians uh, who have died, and, and, and they're now in that place of waiting, uh, and the fact that we're going to see them again. Uh, but Jesus talks more broadly. And Jesus in John chapter 5 is not talking just about what's going to happen to Christians, but now he includes everyone in the discussion. John chapter 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. This is Jesus speaking. 
Truly, truly, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus says, an hour is coming. And in that hour, in that moment, everyone that's in the tombs will hear his voice. Not just some folks, not just the good folks, not just the really, really, really good Christian folks, not just the folks who thought they were Christians. Jesus says, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will rise up out of those tombs, out of those graves. Some of them will go to a resurrection of life. Some of them will go to a resurrection of judgment. That is to say, an execution of that judgment, a carrying out of that judgment. Now, these weren't Paul's words, and I believe Paul was inspired. But these are the words of Jesus himself, saying this is what it's going to transpire like. This is what it's going to be like. There's going to be a, a judgment. There's going to be a resurrection. And then in that resurrection, there'll also be a judgment. So let's think about this idea of judgment and eternity. We need to understand that this earth is going away. It's going to last no longer. And this is something that Peter talks about. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, following, or excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, following. And as you turn over to 2 Peter, I want you to recognize that uh, Jewish literature had a form of literature called apocalypse or apocalyptic literature. Uh, and uh, there's some people who say, well, maybe that's what Peter is doing here. But it had some specific things which marked it as being apocalyptic literature. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But first, let's read what Peter says. First Peter chapter, 2 Peter, rather. 2 Peter. Chapter 3 and verse 18, or verse 8. I want to mess this up for you guys as much as I can. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 8. Peter says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like, make sure you get that like in there, is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but that all will come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct? and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will meet with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says there's a day coming God's going to destroy this earth. It's not going to be eons and eons of time in which we have slow climate change. Uh, it's coming with a roar. It's coming... Immediately, it's coming like a thief in the night. And so Peter says, when that happens, everything on this earth is going to be destroyed. Everything that you and I know as earth and space and the universe and the sun 
and the stars and the atmosphere, all of that is going away immediately. This is going to be a hot, hot, hot time. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm trying to say he says it's going to be an intense heat. It's going to destroy everything. And this earth is going to be gone forever. And we're looking for something different. We're looking for a new heavens. We're looking for a new earth. We're looking for a new place to live. And we identify that as heaven. Now, some people say, oh, Peter's just using apocalyptic language uh, to scare us. He's using apocalyptic literature uh, to get our attention. But you need to remember that apocalyptic literature was always written in extreme foreign domination. It always used extreme symbolism. It was always used by, uh, as a message given by an angel or in a dream or in a vision. Uh, it always discussed last things, and the future events were always depicted as though they had happened in the past. And none of that appears in 1 Peter except his discussion of the last days. Peter is talking about what's really going to happen when the Lord returns. This earth is going to be destroyed. It's not going to be here anymore. And so what's going to happen? If that happens to our earth, what happens to us? There's going to be a judgment. We've already touched on it. Jesus alluded to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's look at that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in, in this house we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we have, uh, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed with Christ, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And so Paul uses this analogy of saying our bodies are just a tent. Now some of us have pump tents. Some of us seem to have, you know, the big 10-person tent. I don't know, right? I digress. But some of us, live, we, our bodies are like a tent. He says, look, camping is nice. We all like to go camping, except a couple people I know, uh, all like to go camping, but you know, you're out there in the woods and the mosquitoes are biting, you, you smell like smoke, the food is raw, it's not good. By the end of the camping trip, you're, you're, you're thinking to yourself, I want to be back home and go to my real house and have all the good things in my real house and have good cooked food and, and to get to sleep in a real bed. Paul says, that's what it's like. We're stuck out there in the woods and all we got is this little pup tent. But there's a day coming in which we're going to get rid of that tent and we're going to be in our real house. And our real house, he says, is heaven. That's what we're looking for. But look at verse 9. He says, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. So whether we're talking about being in heaven, whether we're talking about being in this tent, we're always wanting to be pleasing to God. And then He says, because, or for. He supplies the reason. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us will be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
on that day, we'll stand before God and we'll be judged by the things that we've done in the flesh. If we're covered by the grace of God because we've washed ourselves in the body of Christ, we know that we have the pleasure of God's grace and God's compassion because of the blood of Christ. But we must all stand before that judgment seat of God. Folks, we could talk more about this judgment of God. We could look at Matthew chapter 25 in which Jesus says a day is coming in which everyone will be separated, the sheep and the goats. The sheep are on the right, the goats are on the left. And that's a judgment. And Jesus says some of those will go to a resurrection of life and some of them to a resurrection of judgment, very similar to what he says in John chapter 5. What side are you going to be on? Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that resurrection? Folks, it's not just a joke. I don't talk about politics. I don't talk about religion. Because they might offend some folks. But it's a true statement. Religion tells you where you came from and where you're going. And it also ought to inform you about what you do. The Bible is here. Well, what happens to us when we die? Our souls may go and they may go to a place of waiting until that great day in which Jesus returns. And on that great day, everyone that's in that place of waiting will be raised up out of that place of waiting and stand before God. And there will be a judgment. Those who are found to be in the blood of Christ get to go on and, and stay with Christ and live with Him forever. Refuse to find Christ. Will find that they have found, placed themselves outside of Christ. Outside of that eternal home. If you're here this morning and you're looking for that eternal home and you want to be united with Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection, so you get to be a part of that eternal home. Once you come, as together we stand and sing.